Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's mormondiscussion, all one word, dot P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Dot com. You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now to what you've been waiting to hear. Kevin Christensen, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you, Bill. Good. Glad to have you on. In today's episode, what we want to discuss at length uh, is the idea behind what expectations and assumptions we make about what a prophet, or for that matter, what an apostle needs to fill and we often draw ideas that perhaps aren't rooted in truth within the scriptures. And so, Kevin, uh, I'll let you kind of share a brief bio about yourself, but Kevin has done some lengthy work uh, on some articles that have been published that deal with this whole idea. So, Kevin, maybe if we can just start off with you just sharing a little bit about who you are so that my listeners get a feel for some of the work that you've done. Okay, well, uh, I'm... Professionally, I'm a technical writer. I've been a technical writer for 30 years. Uh, it took a while to get into that. I didn't start till I was 30, but I've been doing that for 30 years. I've been a member all my life. I grew up in uh, in Utah. I went on a mission to England. And um, while I was in England, I went to a... We were sharing a little film called Meet the Mormons at a, at a town called Colm. And uh, we could see these little middle schoolers passing around their first anti-Mormon pamphlets, you know, with this just excitement. I just thought, yeah, this is going to go well. But uh, I found that some of these kids were asking me questions that I didn't have really good answers for. And then I found that kind of annoying. And uh, But at the time, I was reading the scriptures a lot myself and finding out I was learning things that I hadn't been taught, and that was helpful. So then uh, there's another period out there where I was teaching an investigator uh, who was reading the Book of Mormon. He just decided to do it his own way and read Mosiah's discourse. And he's came to us and said, uh, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Well, what's wrong? He said, well, it says that at the end of this discourse that everyone was converted. And he said, people aren't like that. You know, somebody would somebody would have disbelieved just because of his view of human nature. And at the time, the best answer I could give was, well, it was a good speech. 
which wasn't very good. But uh, <laughs> about a year after that, uh, when I was working out of uh, uh, Lancaster area, I had some investigators up in Kendall loan me a book called uh, An Approach to the Book of Mormon by Hugh Nibley, which was the first Nibley I'd consciously read. And I took it to uh, our apartment on our P-Day, and I thought I'd just read the interesting chapters while I was in the bathtub. And I read the whole book. My companion, Elder Lawrence, was writing letters all day. I just got through the entire thing. And that that changed me. So when I got back, I had this, you know, I had open questions. You know, why was it that things that seemed so obvious to me were so hard for other people to believe? And uh, I, so I started tracking scriptures in the Bible. I thought, well, so what, what, are, what are the keys for true and false prophets? And I started collecting these and collecting ones that, uh, as I started collecting, I noticed that there were several things that, didn't usually come up when the question came up. So uh, over the years, I collected lots of these. And I, at one point, you know, I've, I've, my study has about 28. And they're all neatly paired with uh, keys for false prophets. So that helps you apply them properly. And uh, what I found personally is that just made things more obvious to me than they'd been before. So then I started studying passages in the Bible that said, okay, what what should you do to find truth? And I came up with these, and that was also very helpful. And it turned out that, you know, it's 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 not be a narrow-minded fundamentalist who only defers to authority all the time. It's about making serious inquiries about everything. And that was very helpful, but it still didn't answer my question. Why is it that these things that seem so obvious to me, and you know, with my testimony, um, don't seem obvious to other people? So then I started studying biblical passages where somebody's justifying their rejection of a Bible prophet. And that's where it sort of came together. I, after I came up with about 70 of these, I realized that uh, none of them had gone out of date. And that brought the scriptures to life for me in ways that other kinds of questions I'd been asking didn't, because people were talking the same way that they had been doing 2,000 years ago. And the picture that I got from this, uh, I was talking about it with a, an ex-sister-in-law, and she recommended that I read a book by Thomas Kuhn called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. So I read that, and a lot of my work uh, since then has relied on, on Thomas Kuhn, but I, I'd kind of figured a lot of the same picture just by reading the scriptures, which I think is interesting. And then I, I later made connections with Alma 32, which I think gives the same epistemology as uh, Thomas Kuhn. So it's all very advanced and interesting. And uh, I did have one brief crisis of faith for about three days uh, in the early uh, 1990s. Uh, I got an issue of dialogue with an article on the uh, creation accounts by Thomas, or by Anthony Hutchinson, and uh, that bothered me for a couple days, till I was, uh, <clears throat> I was looking at one of the pages in that article, and it had a diagram of what he called the Hebrew cosmos, and it has, you know, this, the firmament up above, this rigid firmament, and there's waters above that, and then there's windows in heaven, and there's the pillars of, uh, or corners of the earth, and then the waters beneath, and this flat earth, all described. And I was looking at that diagram and pondering it, and uh, I thought, where have I seen this before? You know, because I'd gotten involved in Hugh Nibley and had been tracking down all things Nibley, this is back in the day where there wasn't that much available. You know, I'd got, come home and I'd bought uh, 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 Sense Kimura and the Myth Makers and Lehi in the Desert and The World and the Prophets and had been tracking down uh, unpublished things in various places. And uh, around the time I uh, exhausted all those possibilities, farms started up. And so I started collecting the stuff that they were publishing, these uh, preliminary reports. 
And one of those was uh, a 1980 paper called Three Facsimiles of the Book of Abraham. And that one quoted from a book called uh, Hamlet's Mill by uh, uh, Earth von Dekond and uh, De Santiana. And there's a passage in that that talks about archaic cosmology. And the archaic cosmology in there turned out to match very well with uh, our Book of Abraham. And it's based on the idea of the procession of the equinoxes that takes place every 26,000 years and because there's one star that is, because it's at right angles to the planet of the ecliptic, uh, it doesn't wobble with the rest of the uh, precession, which is basically the Earth wobbles. So from a, the observer, point of view of an observer on the Earth, the whole cosmos wobbles. There's one star that doesn't, so it looks like everything is rotating around that. And the Arabic name for that star is Kalab. So I wrote an article for Dialogue and... Uh, it had been, you know, a long time passed before I heard back. I'd even forgotten I'd written the essay, but uh, they published it in 1991. And then later I started writing things for farms, and they were all published. And uh, so a few years ago, then also there was a, got into a debate with a guy named Richard Abaines, who annoyed me enough when he was claiming that he could uh, reject Joseph Smith based on, you know, what he called the biblical test for a prophet, that I decided I'd better get my stuff published. So I hauled out what I could find of my old notes, my old typewritten notes, and put together uh, a hypertext version of the document and did that for fair. And uh, the hypertext is important because, you know, I, I hadn't published it before because it's just lots and lots and lots and lots of quotes, and who's going to want to read that stuff? But in a hypertext format, I can uh, put the information down at a lower level, and people can just browse through and figure out, you know, where they want more detail but get an overview of what's going on. Pretty cool. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, um, I guess the follow-up, <clears throat> the follow-up question then, it, it sounds like, I wanted to ask you how you got involved in apologetics, but it sounds like in, in a formal manner that you essentially just started writing things down in, as questions came up or as criticisms came up that you felt like you had a perspective on, you simply wrote something and sent it in, huh? Um, yeah, well, it was, it was the, the dialogue article, yeah, I just realized that I had something to say. You know, I, basically, I was just interested. You know, when I got back from my mission, I just got more interested and uh, started reading and reading and, you know, nibbly led to Richard L. Anderson and to dialogue and BYU studies and sandstones and, and, uh, you know, if, if, if we were videoing this, you know, I could show you about stacks and stacks of books and bookshelves here that have accumulated over the years. And it just got to the point where, with that dialogue essay, I realized I had something to say, and it was published. And then a little while later, I uh, was reading a book by Raymond Moody called The Light Beyond about near-death experiences, and I realized that I had something to say about that, because I saw Alma's conversion as a near-death experience. And then after, in uh, 1985, when the Roberts study was published, I read that from the library, and then a little bit later, uh, Vogel wrote his book, and I thought, well, I'll read that because I'd like to see, you know, what further research on the topic was. And I read Vogel's Indian Origins in the Book of Mormon, and I realized I had something to say about that. And uh, I sent that stuff all off, and it was all published. I didn't know it was difficult. I just <laughs> ended up doing it. Gotcha. It, as I say, it, it would be, I think, valuable that you say that because there's going to be people who listen to this episode either through the uh, the FAIR blog or my site and as they're listening to this interview, they may be thinking that they've got some perspective on things that they'd like to share, but but they feel like in order to get something published, you have to be either well-known or um, in some professional capacity. 
but in reality, if one has a, a perspective that, that works, that is viable, then they ought to try and put something together, right? Yeah, yeah. He inevitably wrote a paper, and he said, uh, on publication in graduate school, and he said, for, to get published, you need something that is original, authentic, and significant. And if it has those three characteristics, you'll have no trouble getting published. And if it lacks those, it shouldn't be. Gotcha. Yeah, that's great. And the other question I want to ask you before we start jumping into the uh, the questions I've got regarding profits and what test we should have rather than the ones we think we should have. I want to ask you, because you mentioned this brief faith crisis that you had, I wanted to, to ask you just over the years, because I don't know how many people that listen to this are going to know you, but you you seem to be, be a very calm and collective guy, one who who doesn't get uh, outwardly or, or uh, frustrated in a way that, that is apparent to people. You seem to be very... Uh, cool and calm in the way that you handle your responses. And I know that you've obviously gone through paradigm shifts in your growth as a, as a church member and as you've, as you've figured out things that don't work and things that do work. Just listening to you talk about some of these papers you've written shows that. How have you handled these paradigm shifts? When you wake up one day and you read something, you go, uh oh, what I used to believe no longer works. What's your process for, for working through that? Well, in retrospect, I've looked, what I've done is I, when I run across something I didn't expect, I ask myself, oh, that's interesting. What should I expect? And I give things time and I keep my eyes open. The alternative to that, and that sounds simple, but the alternative is to, uh, is to never change my assumptions, to insist on answers now, and, uh, what did I say? Uh, Give things time, keep my eyes open, you know, that means I'm constantly trying to learn, keep up, and, uh, just, uh, give things time instead of insisting on answers right now. So, you know, the thing with, uh, you know, even with the, uh, the Hutchinson's article, you know, I realized that, uh, I wasn't prepared for some of the stuff that he was saying, but I gave myself time. And I also figured out that, that, uh, if I kept my eyes open, I'd learn stuff and uh, change my perspective. And so it's uh, the difference between disillusion and enlightenment is whether the experience is of shattering or growth. And if I just give myself room to grow, I save myself a lot of pain. That's that's beautiful. And I guess maybe just the only point I would make is is for those listening, there's there's you know, if we want to split things up into a dichotomy, there's the way I handle things, which is to get angry and bitter and to throw things against the wall and to shout and scream until somebody acknowledges the frustration I have. Or you can handle things Kevin's way which is to give things uh, time and to process things and to look for answers and, and to not demand an answer at the immediate moment. So I hope people can see the value in in your method over the one that I tend to use. And uh, anyway, I just think that's important. I think that we always talk about this shelf and putting things on the shelf for a while. And some people can't do that. They feel like they can anyway. And 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 as they as they encounter things that are problematic uh they just they they feel this need for an immediate answer, but in reality, the amount of information that one needs to take in, consider, ponder, match against other things, reevaluate one's own uh, expectations and assumptions that one makes, that takes time, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. But uh, here's another story that I tell, and this is one I told in uh, in my first dialogue article. It's just when I was a kid, when I was a little boy, this is one of the almost my earliest memories. My dad drove us down to the Cleveland Lloyd Dinosaur Quarry in central Utah. And this is when, you know, unimproved roads, you couldn't tell that it was a road, just a dirt track, really rough. And my memories are of dust and things banging on the bottom of the car. 
and we get out there and there's at this point there was no uh, no kind of museum or anything it's just a place where there's a few paleontologists and students and they're exposing bones in the rocks so you know what am i three or four years old but i could look at those bones in the rocks and i knew the bones were real and i've learned a great deal since then about dinosaur bones and and uh and a lot of it's changed since then, radically. You know, they've gone from being cold-blooded to warm-blooded. The uh, brontosaurus, with its cool name of Thunder Lizard, no longer exists because it turns out that an old, uh, in the race to get a complete skeleton, a fossil hunter had stuck the wrong head on. So now it's the Apatosaurus, and uh, they travel in herds, and instead of living in swamps like you see in, you know, the old King Kong, they traveled in herds with their tails raised, and they, you know, with teeth designed to strip uh, needles from pine trees and stuff. So you get all of these things that change about it, but the thing that doesn't change is that the bones are real, and a child could tell that. Right. And so yeah. the experiences that I've had in the church that my testimony is based on are more the wine than the wineskin. It's not the surface that holds things together, which is expendable, but the stuff that those surfaces are designed to contain. You, uh, you say the brontosaurus from what we know now doesn't exist. That crashes my world because that was my favorite dinosaur. <laughs> it was for a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> Over that started out, you know, showing this uh, brontosaurus skeleton in a museum and then a chainsaw comes on and they cut the head off because, you know, to illustrate that, you know, that somebody had made a mistake. Right. And it's something that we all had for years and we, you know, it was either Triceratops, Tyrannosaurus Rex or Brontosaurus. <laughs> Well, that's that's amazing. Uh, so we learn something every day. I I want to pose, I guess, the issue from the perspective of one in crisis and what they perceive, and then we can start to kind of dive in. Um, so, all right. So the problem that I think people in crisis perceive, and having been there, I hope that I I word this right. Members of the church grow up with the feeling of because of what they're taught by other members, by the things they put together from talks in church magazines, church manuals, and even conference talks, members of the church get this impression of a prophet. And what, what that impression is, is they'll, one, a prophet is somebody who is almost perfect. We, we kind of teach in the church that the idea that the, that the the spokesman of the Lord, the prophet of the church, is this person who is very close to perfection and has very little uh, of flaws or of personal weakness. The other thing we run into is we expect, because we've been taught, that our prophet is just like Moses and Abraham and Noah, and we use that exact wordage in our in our manuals and the way we talk about them, we come to expect these mighty miracles that are publicized throughout the land of of these men. We expect these great and marvelous things from these men. And when we first either join the church or growing up in the church, we kind of adopt that as kind of our black and white view. And someday we encounter information, perspectives, experiences, which lead us to understand that those assumptions and expectations aren't correct. And many members, when they encounter this, feel like the assumption and the expectation is is absolutely realistic, and it's simply the church prophets that have fallen short. And at that point, they lose faith. And, and so what I want to do is I want to run us through 
some of the ideas that you've come across scripturally and how you've expanded on those and give you a chance to take our listeners, take their perspective, and put it back into a way that they now have new assumptions and expectations that are actually biblically held as true and their expectations and assumptions that our church leaders can then flourish in and absolutely be seen in a pro- as a prophet or as prophets and apostles. Is that fair? All right, so Kevin, with that said, kind of setting up the background, I know the first thing that you kind of wrote about in putting your paper together on this this idea is to help people first grasp what they need to be able to do to see truth. And I wondered if you could run us through some of the things that you think us as members of the church need to be able to do so that when truth comes along, we'll recognize it. Biblical, you can find scriptures on this, you know, what you're to do to see truth, and basically they come to to say, well, you've got to be interested. Of course, if you're not interested, every missionary knows what happens. <laughs> right. You have to listen with purposeful, purposeful intent, seeking knowledge of God, you know, not just to, to uh, satisfy some curiosity. It's got to be meaningful. You have to have open minds and have faith where you're you're hoping for that which you don't see. You examine what the prophet brings forward, you know, and in Joseph Smith's case, you've got the Book of Mormon and the whole life and there's stuff for the Bible. And you listen to the witnesses, and you don't just select to find somebody who's going to tell you what you want to hear. Consider the credentials and motives of the authorities and witnesses involved. And you're, you should be as concerned with measuring yourself as measuring the prophets. That's you know, the multi-eye business. You know, if we've got beams in our own eye, how can we know that we're seeing clearly? And so there has to be some self-reflection and pray and then persist whatever the cost. And it turns out that, uh, that there, I, I found that I think there's an organic relationship between the things that you're supposed to do to see truth and what happens when you don't. You know, the, the arguments against Bible prophets are always related to some failure at one of these points. And uh, so what is it that we're supposed to be looking for in a prophet? And you talk about expectations. And sometimes culturally, you're right, they do set it up. Uh, they do sometimes set us up for a fall. I don't think they mean to. I think it's just there's certain personalities at a certain level of development uh, just like to have that authority to be there to have everything right. And uh, so it used to be when they published the conference issue of the Ensign, they used to publish on the back from DNC1, whether by mine own voice or by the voice of my servants, it is the same. But that's wrenched from context, and the whole context says something a little different. What I, the Lord, have spoken, I have spoken, and I excuse not myself, you know. But And that isn't necessarily the same thing as saying whatever the Lord's servant speaks is what he says. There's a distinction there. Right. And uh, DNC 1 actually is... Um, see, one of the things I did to help myself on my mission was I read... You know, the Book of Mormon five times and the DNC, I think, uh, five times. And when you read it straight through very quickly, instead of extracting doctrine, what you get is the relationship between the Lord and his prophet. And you see, you see this process of, of the Lord trying to help Joseph Smith grow. And you see the flaws and the folly, you know. I mean, section three is Joseph Smith losing 116 pages. And it's, it's full of rebukes and, uh, all the way through. And it's, I think that's really interesting. But in, in DNC one, verse six, this is, uh, and it's, this is a formal statement of mine authority and the authority of my servants. So what is it that we should expect? And the expectations are set up right in verses 24 to 28. Behold, I am God and I and have spoken it. These commandments are of me and were given unto my servants in their weakness. It doesn't say in their perfection. <laughs> in their weakness after the manner of their language that they might come to understanding. Which means he's raising them up somehow. Inasmuch as they've erred, it might be made known. Aha. Uh-huh. 
And as much as they sought wisdom, they might be instructed. That means they have to seek. We have to ask the question, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be open to you. It doesn't just say, just blessed are they who sit like lumps, for they shall be spoon-fed. It talks about seeking. Inasmuch as they sin, they might be chastened, that they might might repent. And the DNC is, and the Bible, in fact, is full of that stuff. Inasmuch as they were humble, they might be made strong and blessed from on high and receive knowledge from time to time, which makes it not all the time. And right. uh, it's also non-exclusive. Verse Revelation is non-exclusive because after saying, okay, I called Joseph Smith, and it says, verse 18, and I also gave commandments to others. That's unspecified who they are. Later on, he says, I, the Lord, am willing to make these things known unto all flesh. So we have an express declaration there that what we've got is imperfect, incomplete, and non-exclusive. And uh, I noticed when I read uh, Gerald Tanner's book, Gerald and Sandra Tanner's book, I noticed that their whole life is based on the premise that the Mormons should be perfect, complete, and exclusive. So just based on that scripture, I can see that they wasted their lives. They're, because they're working under a false premise. And when you work under the false premise, then the wrong information becomes more significant. You know, if you're saying, is he perfect? Then all that matters is imperfection. But it's like the kid looking at the dinosaur bones. I know the bones are real. And then I can read books, you know, and find out all sorts of things about it. And then uh, more can be learned. And we find out that some of what I learned was imperfect. But that doesn't change the fact that the bones are real. Awesome. You know, what was that scripture again? Doctrine and Covenants, what section? Doctrine and Covenants, section one. It's this formal declaration. As it says, It's this is a formal declaration of mine authority and the authority of my servants. Awesome. So I, I quote this all the time, I, you know, on the, on the boards and then several times in my writing. So verse 6 says, this is my authority and the authority of my servants. Verses 24 to 28 are the ones talking about, this is where, the, you know, uh, their weakness, in as much as they varied, it shall be made known. And as much as they sought wisdom, they might be instructed. And as much as they sinned, they might be chastened, that they might repent. And as much as they were humble, they might be made strong and blessed from on high and receive knowledge from time to time. You know, that sets up our expectations. And with those expectations, then uh, I can deal with everything I see. Right. The, the bar is, the, all of a sudden, the bar is not this impossible thing set out of reach. It's now something that's within the realm of what our prophets carry out. Right. And uh, Perfect. Yeah. And, and Thomas Kuhn's book, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, talks about how, you know, in the sciences, anomaly only emerges against an background of expectation. That is, you know, if a scientist scientist is doing a, an experiment, he can't tell something's wrong unless he's expecting something different. The other side of this, and I don't want to talk about it at length, but just to maybe mention it, because I know some people who listen to this will be frustrated by these same things. You know, you, that's in the Doctrine of Covenants. I think there's plenty of examples of our leaders teaching that they don't, they should not be trusted in the sense that every single word that comes out of their mouth will be the mind and will of God. And yet, if you go into a ward on Sunday school and you try to talk about these kinds of ideas, I mean, you get, you get angry stares and sometimes you get people raising their hand and, and bitterly fighting against you in that because they've got this, this bar that's set way too high. Um, I don't, I don't want to be long on this point, but any recommendations for how you help people to make assumptions that are more realistic? Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that helps is, uh, I mean, besides just learning about prophets and scriptures, I've also been interested in personality types. You know, so I've read, I've got several books on the Myers-Briggs type indicator. And if you read, say, the descriptions of the ESTJ type, that's uh, extroverted, sensing, thinking, judging, 
uh, and there's certain patterns of behavior that show up. And, and I, when I started, when I read those books, I realized that a lot of what I, I'm dealing with is personality preferences. And there are, there are 16 different personality types, and I can appreciate people for their differences. Also, uh, some years ago, uh, a lady named Vita Hell sent, introduced me to something called the Perry Scheme of Cognitive and Ethical Growth. And uh, here's position two of nine on this thing. And it says, multiplicity prelegitimate resisting snake. Now the person moves to accept that there is diversity. They still think there are true authorities who are right and others, the others are confused by complexities or are just frauds. They think they are with the true authorities and are right while all others are wrong. They accept that their good authorities present problems so they can learn to reach, reach right answers independently. Now, the Perry scheme was developed uh, by a guy named William Perry who was studying students come in, come, coming into Yale from provincial little high school environments to a diverse university environment. And this is just a position of human development of dealing with complexity. And if I look at this and I realize, ah, these people that want everything to be set up and have the true authorities with all the answers on the shelf, that's a stage of human development. That's a position. That's something that shows up in every society, every culture. It's just part of human development. Right. Why get so frustrated when, when it's simply a recognition that there are others who are simply at the point where they're at, they're just not thinking along the same lines and, and to cut them some slack for that. I, I struggle to death with that, as you well know. Uh, and that, and it's hard for me and I'm sure I'm, other people get frustrated with me over these same reasons, but you're right. We need to just take a step back and let people be where they're at, maybe plant a few seeds here and there, but not, not force people to transition from one stage to another within that scheme. Yeah. And I found one of the ways that I've dealt with it all my, you know, in all of the uh, church environments I've been in is, is I realized that uh, if I know the scriptures better than they do, and they're the ones that are saying, well, it's all in the scriptures and stuff, uh, that <laughs> they at least have to shut up and think. <laughs> right. right. No, absolutely. You know, they may not agree with me, but if I've got some scriptures that I can back myself up with, then they may give me a little bit more room. Yeah, and I always do that. Late, you know, obviously, when first coming into my crisis and just coming out of it, I just wanted to blast people for these thoughts I was having that that made their faith no longer fit for me. And what I've done lately is I'll throw a little seed out there. I'll back it up with a quote from a general authority or with a scripture, and then I'll I'll let them know that there's some flexibility that it's not just an all or nothing that I'm right and they're wrong, but that. There's an opportunity to maybe for all of us to think about it and to delve deeper into that subject. Yeah. See, now you're turning into Alma in Alma 29, where he says, uh, after having, you know, wanting the voice of an angel to shake the earth and you know, hammer everybody into shape, he says, "I sin in my wish. I ought not to harrow up my desires, the firm decree of God. I know that He granteth unto men according to their desire." You know, he says it gives them to their wills. It's basically just saying. In verse 8, the Lord grant unto all nations of their own nation and time to teach his word and yea and wisdom all that he seeth that they should have. It's just this, you know, Alma lets go. Gotcha. He doesn't let go of his testimony or his faith or his love, but he lets go of the idea of trying to compel anyone. And right. it turns into an invitation. And so it's, I, I think there's that song that they sometimes sing, you know, that does the first part and misses the, that I sin on my wish. Right. No, and and I think I'm still holding on with one hand, but uh, but I think this is crucial. I hope that listeners, um, when this episode is published, there will be a link 
to the document that Kevin is talking about, the Perry Scheme of Cognitive Development uh, and Ethical Development, and it will be in the format that he's speaking of. There's uh, the person you mentioned who who has kind of condensed it into some ideas that we as Latter-day Saints can really work with. I'll share that with this uh, with this episode so that everybody can read it. Uh, I'll also post your papers uh, about the subject that we're talking about. I want to get into biblical test for assessing prophets. I want to I want to talk about I want to kind of set aside for a moment the assumptions and expectations that we make. I want to talk about the actual realistic scriptural what I would call truthful assumptions and expectations that we should make. And the first thing that you list is claims that a prophet must make. What kind of claims should a prophet make uh, using the scriptures? They'll talk about revelation and vision. They'll have witnesses for what they've done. They'll talk about being chosen by God for instead of, you know, I choose God. They're rather called to be a prophet. And they are adorned, ordained by prophecy and the laying on of hands by those in authority. Those are fundamental claims according to the, these Bible scriptures. And is there anything more than that, or is that essentially what we're left with? That's Those are the claims that a prophet must make. And these these are all very well documented in the scriptures. Uh, and, you know, so when I look at Joseph Smith, yeah, so far so good. And um, uh, I think you've raised the question about, well, what about the modern prophets? Uh, there's actually more of that going on than we pay attention to, I think. Uh, there, there's two aspects of it. There's... there's uh, Greg Smith had an article in the recent interpreter who's responding to Denver Snuffer on this, and he actually has collected uh, a surprisingly large number of accounts by modern prophets and apostles talking about revelations that they've received. And they're just not published and bandied about so much, but he's able to find a lot of it. And on the other hand, there was a, also a, a very good conference talk that I can remember not where and when, I think it was Brother Packer who talked about that the majority of the revelation that they receive is in terms of promptings and whisperings rather than, you know, face-to-face or or dictations. But those sort of things happen too, even if they're not published that often. Right. And so like the scripture you used in D&C 1, when you talk about that, you know, these, these big revelations shall come from time to time. And then understand that in between, that our leaders are generally just led by the whisperings of the Spirit. And, and, and to recognize that when that happens, when those, when they're not the big revelations that are in your face, that there's going to be some room for them to maybe understand the inspiration. And I'll even go so far as to say incorrectly from time to time, or to say things in a way that, uh, that maybe isn't the exact way the Lord would prefer it to have been done or to have been phrased. Yeah, and that's that's and that's all laid out in DNC one too. You know that that sometimes we have to prepare ourselves to be able to ask the right questions so that we will understand the answer when it comes. There's also the passage in uh, in uh, Ephesians about you know the prophets and apostles being called till we all come in, into the unity of the faith and not be tossed around to and fro by every wind of doctrine. It's an organization that's going to have some. You know, a re- it's a ca- got a capacity to change, but it doesn't want to just bounce around like that. And one of the things that slows down the institutional church, uh, I think that Quinn wrote about this, is that the DNC says that they have to have unan- uh, unanimity on everything. They all have to come to a oneness before they can change things. And that, uh, for big policy changes, that often slows things down. Right. But uh, right. that also made it so that uh, there was an article on the blog this past summer talking about how when the priesthood uh, revelation came in 1978 that you know I was I was in Salt Lake when that happened and uh, the response of the church was celebration and joy. It wasn't what the heck. <laughs> it was right. you know just I 
I was going to where it was just before I got married and I was over at my wife's apartment and uh, she just, you know, I was coming up the stairs and she looked down at me and her eyes were big and she says, I just heard on the radio something, you know, about this. And I went and I'd seen a newspaper on the steps and I went down and got it and looked up. There was on the first page. And as I was reading, I heard car horns honking all over the city. You know, so, you know, so the experience there, it, it was, there was no resistance to it. It was just yes. And, and this huge yes for us was, was remarkable to be there for. Yeah. And, and I want to hit on this a little bit later when we talk about this you, uh, unanimity to have everybody be non, unanimous with, with the idea that all 15 men have to come to some agreement, um, on something. I want to hit on that later as we talk about maybe why things don't fit, maybe the, some of those false assumptions. Number number two you've got listed is teaching Christ. I think that one's pretty obvious, right? They they teach about the Savior. They teach that he's the redeemer of mankind, and they testify of him. Yeah, that he's come in the flesh, and that we're going to have prophets and apostles till we all come in unity to the faith. And there's an important one in there that he accepts the biblical God. And uh, that gets interesting because sometimes, like the evangelicals, uh, Actually, Richard of Baines was trying to do this, and we hammered him on that. Is uh, how is God understood in the Old Testament? You know, and it turns out that that what we get from Joseph Smith takes us back to the original understanding. But, you know, that's that's one of the really cool things. But the, we've got the details in there. Awesome. Yeah, like I said, this paper will be linked there. Number three, you've got is character of teaching. Uh, explain what you mean by that. Um, well, what sort of things is he going to, to ask of you? You know, and one of them is he's going to preach repentance, or is he going to say, eat, drink, and be merry, and just send money? Uh, <laughs> right. he, he teaches one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. That's just New Testament stuff. He teaches by the Spirit so that your faith stands in the power of God. As uh, Nibley talks about this quite a bit in the in the world and the prophets, is, is that um, they want you to believe in God, not in them. You know, uh, the, the open understanding of the scriptures. You know, that's something Brigham Young said about Joseph Smith. He said that he'd been to several different churches, but Joseph Smith could, you know, reach up and take heaven and bring it down and lay it down so a child could understand it. Teaching consistent with scriptures. Um, and of course, since the scriptures have inconsistencies, that leaves room, I think, for all sorts of wiggle room. Uh, provides knowledge of the heavenly council. See, that's important. We, the proof text we always got on the mission was, uh, Amos 3.7, surely the Lord God do, will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his, his servants, the prophets. But the word that we translate as secret, sod, is refer, a reference to the heavenly council. So the original genuine meaning of those scriptures that talk about that is that the prophet's business is to tell you about the heavenly council. And uh, they teach their followers to expect trials in life. Oh, and also you know, provides knowledge of, of God's covenant. The business of trials is important because... Uh, you know, like on my mission, I knocked on a door and this lady was upset because she said her husband was kind and good and faithful and he still died. <laughs> it's, you know, it's sad, but the expectation, it's, it's opposite that we get in the Book of Mormon where Nephi, you know, in the first verse, he says, I've been highly favored the Lord and I've also had many afflictions, which I think in that verse, it's taking you into a completely different world than that offered by Job's comforters, that uh, this yeah. life is going to be hard. Yeah, it often feels... Like we're told, and I get it, it's because, again, we go back to this Perry scheme of of how we each think and reason things out, and, and we often, early on in our understanding, early on in our view, we grasp this idea that if we do the right things, we shall be blessed, and, and while that's true, we in our minds kind of determine what kind of blessings that should be. And, and so when negative things happen, we're really not prepared for it. We almost, we almost set ourselves up to view the world 
the way the scriptures talk about Abraham, which is when every, you know, anything he did was good, and because everything he did was good, he was blessed with all these immense and great things, and his life was great, and he had an abundance of things, and he lived a long life, and yet, like you say, we've got Job, and even, you know, to another extent, we've got the Savior who balanced that out. We've got Joseph Smith, who certainly does not fit this Abraham idea of, of having everything just because he's righteous. And so we've got to figure out some way to kind of uh, even that out and, and not have that expectation be so high. And now, a brief message from one of our sponsors. The sponsor is a regular listener to Mormon Discussion Podcast. He has written the book, 77 Days in September. It tells of a story of a man overcoming countless obstacles to reunite with his family after a terrorist attack disrupts the United States. 77 Days is based on a real threat, and while not LDS fiction, it is suitable for an LDS audience. It has sold over 75,000 copies, spent five weeks ranked in Amazon's Top 100, narrowly missed the New York Times bestseller list, and has over 1,800 reviews with 90% of reviewers rating it four or five stars. If you like to read books, you will love 77 Days in September. 77 Days in September is currently available as an ebook for just $3.99 from Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, iTunes, and Smashwords. Please show your support for this sponsor of our program by purchasing his book, 77 Days in September. And now back to the second half of our episode of Mormon Discussion. So you've, we've talked about the first four. The last one you've got listed is evidences provided. Oh, there's two. And there's also the personal character. Oh, yeah. Sorry, please. Uh, he seeks to please God, not men. He teaches with authority and not as a scribe. They lead as willing and samples to the flock, not for filthy lucre. They recognize and are united with authorized prophets. Now, this was a big deal in New Testament times. Uh, and uh, they admit to being men of passion like us, liable to sin. And uh, the evidence is provided is that God bears them witness with signs and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. And the prophet may do works another than the other man did. You know, there's an example in that uh, of they talk about John the Baptist, and they say John did no miracle. You know, and there's several prophets that didn't do miracles. So you may get some impressive stuff in the case of Moses or, you know, the Elijah stories. And we we have Joseph Smith. I think the Book of Mormon is, you know, there's nothing quite like it. Right. And, uh, but it isn't necessarily going to be there. But if it shows up, pay attention. Uh, they teach that investigators must keep his words to learn the truth of them. You know, that you're not going to be forced just by listening. You've got to take some responsibility yourself. And uh, prophecy uh, they teach that we must pray, and uh, over time, arguments against a prophet fail and demonstrate confusion. So that's the, the 28 different tests from the Bible. And so I want to follow this up with some questions. And the first one that kind of goes along with this list we just went through, in our mind, right, we have this word prophet. And to me, early on at least, and I'm kind of, kind of, uh, I guess, working my way through this now, but in my mind, the word prophet means to prophesy. And yet, there are plenty of examples of modern-day prophets who, who seem to go their entire time as a prophet and not prophesy. I guess my question is, must prophets uh, give prophecies? No. Um, well, and actually, you know, some of the, the Old Testament scholars that I've been reading talk about this is, they're not necessarily foretellers, but forth-tellers. That is, they're not necessarily going to give a vision of the future, but they're going to talk about, you know, how our behavior is going to affect our future. And I think that's important. Um, I know Joseph Smith, I've got Crowther's book, uh, Prophecies of Joseph Smith, where he's, you know, got a hundred or so prophecies that were fulfilled, and there's someone else that's done a longer thing. 
But then there's, you know, they've also talked about, uh, like Heber C. Kimball prophesied a lot, and he's hit or miss on those. Um, I decided that in the Bible, that is the single most abused of the Bible tests, and it's the one most qualified by precept and example, and I give several examples of that. So, you know, it's, it's the best known test, and I think it's the best known test because it's the easiest one to manipulate the answers. Because if prophecies can be conditional, if it's going to take some time for it to be fulfilled, if it can be misinterpreted, if it can be misquoted, misreported, or whatever, there's all sorts of things that can go wrong with it. Uh, so I think the thing to do in that is to not over-rely on it. Plus, there even the rabbis decided that they would restrict it to specific cases where they decided that it would only apply to... Um, short-term prophecy or or consistency with long-term prophecies that have been already accepted. You know, So they, they realize that there's some trouble in relying on that overmatch. But since I've got 27 other tests that are a lot easier to work, then I don't worry about that as much. Gotcha. And, and so it's not a necessity that every prophet give prophecies. And then you also seem to be saying that even when they give prophecies, not that not that they should fail, but that it's not up to us to give the context in which necessarily those should come to pass and that it may be more time required or that our understanding of what the meaning of that prophecy is may be different from what the Lord intended. Yeah, I mean, you've even got Jeremiah at one place. You know, he's been prophesying the fall of Jerusalem and he's become a figure of fun and mockery. And at one point, Jeremiah says, I think it's a remarkable passage. He says to the Lord, wilt thou be unto me as waters, as a liar and as waters that fail? He says, but I couldn't stop speaking. You know, I felt his, the spirit in my bones like a fire, and he had to continue. So even the prophet can be frustrated sometimes. Right, that his words aren't being brought to pass so that he looks credible and looks like he's saying the right things. Awesome. I, I like that. <clears throat> so I want to follow that up. The the number four, when you talk about personal character, you talked about not teaching for filthy lucre. And one of the things I struggle with and again, I always use these same phrases all the time because there's lots of things that as I've had to readapt my paradigm that I've had a hard time over. And one of them was we seem to be taught and teach and emphasize that we are a lay ministry and no one's paid. And then all of a sudden you wake up one day and you realize that the top leaders are paid. And while we don't know what they make, it, it seems like there's some indications that it's, you know, it's not, it's not millions of dollars, but it's also not $25,000 a year. And, and I don't want to get into what that is. I don't know if that even matters to the question. And I realize, too, that these men have given up their personal occupations and have dedicated their life full-time to the church, that in that, and in that context, their families still need fed. They still need to be able to take care of their children, that there should be some pay there. I get that. But it comes across when you say, let's not teach for filthy lucre, and yet at the same time we emphasize tithing and our leaders are paid, how do we reconcile that? Well, I think there's, you know, the passages like you were just saying, you know, they've got to be taken care of. You know, there's a, one of the passages used in the, uh, in the New Testament is, is quoting the Psalms. It says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treads the corn. And, uh, they use that. Uh, Peter talks about it when he's talking about his, his living. And Paul talks about, uh, that he, he has the power to take the money, but he's just decided for himself that he's not going to do it, you know, that he, that he still does his work as a tent maker. So it's, and I think there's a, you know, a variety of how much any of these uh, authorities need when they're called to it, but it, it is, a, you know, a sacrifice and every one of them could be making a lot more money in the private sector without having to live in a fishbowl. So, right. you know, it's, 
to accept a calling as a general authority is, you know, it's something that, you know, I wouldn't wish on anybody. Right. Yeah. The mo- yeah, the rest of us get to retire at some point and take it easy. And yet these guys in their seventies and eighties are, are still flying around the country, getting uh, less sleep probably than the rest of us having discussions that impact millions of people. And, uh, you know, you're right. I mean, these guys, uh, certainly, uh, the brethren are putting in uh, a lot more effort, time, energy into something that the rest of us likely won't have to do at that point. Yeah. And see, uh, I've got some friends, you know, who are ministers. Um, and I look at the relationship that they have with their local congregation, you know, where they have to, you know, basically have their job performance review. And, uh, my bishop never has to go through anything like that. And I, I, I can see the difference, you know, and I, I like these guys. They're my friends with their struggles right. and things, but it, it's, you know, as, as the Latter-day Saint community there, it's, we're far less dependent on the, on the paid ministry, you know, even then. And, and the scriptures do give a pretty good idea of what it means to be preaching for filthy lucre, you know, that there's, and, and to prophesying for money. That's, you know, where, you, you know, it's prophecy on demand sort of thing. You know, if you pay enough, yeah, I'll give you a prophecy, that sort of thing. It's it's dishing out the gospel at a price. Yeah, it's so it's it's a very very different thing than than consecrating your life to the service of the whole community, and it's very public. My sister actually is a CPA, and she has for a number of years worked you know in the accounting department in the church office building. At, and she's brilliant, you know, so they gave her tough jobs. But she could uh, she saw what was going on, and she she had a very clear picture of it, and she saw the consecration involved. And uh, she heard a talk by uh, President Hinckley, you know, where he'd, he'd had a written talk where he went down to the uh, the finance department once, and he just, he, instead of giving the talk, he just says, just treat it all like it's the widow's might. The, uh, the last question, and we've already answered this, I just want to maybe ask it a different way and just maybe get your thoughts. Uh, my question is, what evidences do we have for President Monson being a prophet? And I'll, and I'll share what it feels like. To those who struggle, and even sometimes as I, as I listen, I look at General Conference, and I always feel like the prophet takes the safest talk. That the things he talks about seem to be more gentle, more, um, accepting, inclusive, and I think that even extends, I think President Uchtdorf and President Eyring have done a lot of that as well. And it seems like others within the Quorum of the Twelve then pick up the slack of laying down the law and drawing the lines. And, and in that in that paradigm, in looking at it that way, I sit there and I look and I say, does President Monson give any prophecies? Does he give any revelations? Could could fifteen other intelligent, righteous men in that position lead with the? the same kinds of insights and changes that the 15 we have do. Your thoughts on that, and there may not be a perfect answer. Again, I think somewhere along the way, faith comes into the picture, and and each of us have got to say, okay, these 15 men don't fail against these tests that you're laying out, and at some point we have to lean on the Spirit to tell us whether these are men that are called of God or not. But how do you reconcile the idea that when you look at these men at times – it doesn't feel like there's a lot of revelation or prophecy going on among the group. Well, I think there is. I think it's just a matter of of what nature, you know, what questions they're asking, what their main issues are. And it's like in, in the Book of Mormon when Nephi has his vision, and he says there's one point where he says that so much was uh, Lehi's mind taken up with other things that he beheld not the filthiness of the water. 
Now that's the sense that each of these men is an individual and has his own individual concerns. And the, you know, one of the things that's obvious about President Monson is his personal compassion, his one-on-one ministry. And, uh, you know, when he was called to be a bishop at you know, an amazingly young age, and then he, you know, there's all of these widows in his ward, and he attends every funeral. <laughs> it's, right. you know, so I see that's his concern. And, uh, and I think their their ministry, the things that they specialize in, is going to grow out of their their particular talents as individuals, and and what you know the Lord wants at any particular time at that level. Now there's a there's a guy named uh, John Boyd, who is was a military theorist, and uh, he came up with something called the uh, Oda Loop, the observation oriented decision action things. But then, you know, this this is something from the Wikipedia on his uh, theory. He says. He says that large organizations such as corporations, governments, and military, and of course a large church now, possess a hierarchy of loops at the tactical, grand technical, tactical, and strategic levels. He stated that the most effective organizations have a highly de- decentralized chain of command that utilizes objective-driven orders or directive control rather than method-driven orders in order to harness the mental capacity and creative abilities of individual commanders at each level. What that's saying is, and if, if a large organization is going to be effective, you're going to want to have general things being given in general conference and specific working out of details at the edge. And he calls this, this, uh, publication is called Power to the Edge, Command Control in the Information Age. And he says, those kind of structures create a flexible organic hole that is quicker to adapt rapidly to changing situations. He noted, however, that any such highly centralized organization would necessitate a high degree of mutual trust and a common outlook that came from prior shared experience. Headquarters needs to know that the troops are perfectly capable of forming a good plan for taking a specific objective, and the troops need to know that headquarters does not direct them to achieve certain objectives without good reason. So I, I think um, I see that, you know, that the way that the church is organized, particularly now in a really large is the way that it should be. You know, we shouldn't be getting all of the specific details about everything from them because, you know, then we'd just be sitting here waiting to be fed. What we're, we're all in situations where we have to take initiative and should take initiative and find our own inspiration and revelation, you know. And I have to say, I've seen my wife receive direct revelation where I knew it. I knew what was happening and she knew what was happening. And it was for us exactly what we needed at the time. And it's very consistent with, you know, the talk, you know, where Elder Packer talked about. Most of the time, it's those promptings of the Spirit. So if I've experienced revelation in my own personal life on occasion, you know, not every day, not all the time, and not about everything, but at times when it's important. You know, if, if you look through the Doctrine and Covenants for the Guarantee on Prophets, it's expedience. And that's it. But if what we get is what's expedient, that is enough. I like that. I like the idea that what you're talking about is this uh, is this concept of of now more than ever we probably need some flexibility with all the things that are out there on the internet, all the information that's available. Drawing lines in the sand is is sometimes not helpful, and and especially well, let's just say it that way. And I, I understand what you're agreeing with too. We shouldn't draw lines in the sand that are unnecessary in the sense that they are not doctrinally backed up scripturally or by modern prophets and that we ought to allow people to seek out the spirit to make their own decisions. So for instance, it would be incorrect to make conclusions of exactly how to live out the word of wisdom besides the five things we've been asked not to partake of and that we all eat, we each ought to go to the, to 
our Father in Heaven in prayer and seek out what His definition to us is, and we should live it, but we shouldn't force that definition on others. That We should allow everybody to receive their own inspiration on how they're going to live out that law, again, beyond the part that has been spelled out. Awesome. And, and I like to, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier that while we may see prophets from time to time who seem to be, or at least are not sharing publicly, and so it's not apparent to us, they're not having these dramatic, you know, revelatory experiences, that we ought to just understand that even through the scriptures, some prophets have these marvelous things happen, and other prophets, even as you pointed out, John the Baptist earlier, other prophets have very little that is... um miraculous occur to them. Absolutely. So we've got to have that flexibility. And so we, we ought not to hold every prophet to this idea that every prophet has to part the Red Sea. Yeah, good, good. Um, I want to hit on for a moment the the obstacles that lead to rejecting biblical prophets. And you list two main ones, and you name them as fear and desire. And you define them maybe a little differently than what each of us, when we first hear the word fear or desire, what we mean by that. So would you mind explaining what what you mean by fear and desire? Well, our minds have, you know, we've got our rational part, logical step-by-step, step, and we've got our emotional feeling part. And so our, our fear is what we think. It's our mental framework. It's the way we suppose things to be. Our desires are our ideals. Uh, it's how we want things to be. And there's this sense where it all ties up for me beautifully. There's... Uh, uh, when when Jesus comes in Third Nephi, he says, "You, I'm going to only ask for the sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit." The broken heart is, "Are you willing to give up things you want?" And the contrite spirit, "Are you willing to learn? Are you willing to give up things you think to make progress?" Because if we don't, we're going to be saying to God, "I'm not going to give up what I want, and I'm not going to change what I think." And this uh, this turns out to be in uh, in the story of the Buddha. Uh, when he's under the boot tree, he's meditating on the verge of enlightenment. He's tempted by Maya, who comes, you know, represents the illusion of the world, and he's tempted with his fears and desires. You know, and these are the things that always show up. So, uh, like, <clears throat> for a, uh, my favorite example of uh, distaste for a prophet's words, person, or both, it comes from First Kings 22. And the king is asking about a prophet, and uh, this, this guy says, well, there's one man, Micaiah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, for he doth not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And there's this, uh, also there's the famous story of the certain ruler who asked Jesus, what lack I yet? But he's very sorrowful on hearing the answer that called for him to give up something he desired. Now, this, in that case, it was his wealth, but it could be social position, it could be sexuality, it could be behavior, it could be political power. Um, there's political stuff, uh, if we let him alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and our nation. And then there's complaints about unconventional behavior by the prophet. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Or they say, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. He doesn't behave like I want him to. Uh, or behavior by disciples. The, the disciples aren't behaving the way we want them to. Or uh, it can be economic issues. Uh, and when her masters saw the hope of their gains were gone, they caught Paul and Silas, saying, These men being Jews do exceedingly trouble, exceedingly trouble our city. Or the story of the silversmiths were opposed to Paul, where it's economic stuff. And uh, the fear, where it's the thinking. Uh, when Jesus shows up in Nazareth, is this not the carpenter's son? 
uh, or, you know, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? They're putting up stuff like that. They're not measuring the profit. They're just, it's their idea of what the, uh, they're getting. Or a misinformation in Matthew 28. Say ye his disciples came by night and stole him away while he slept. You know, misinterpretation. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Uh, tradition or mental inertia. No man having drunk old wine straight away desireth the new, for he saith the old is better. Or, you know, like another one from John. We know that God spake unto Moses, as for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. They charged blasphemy, which I think is really ironic, because thou being a man makest thyself God. You know, we hear a lot of that ourselves. There's the, the God-maker's approach, which is using the same argument. Incredulity. And their words seem to them as idle tales, and they believe them not. Or one of my favorites from John 6, after the Bread of Life sermon. This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? Or the problem of appealing to authorities. Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? So people use uh, authority or consensus in some other way to circumvent examining what the prophet has offered. So, But in all of these cases, it, it's, it boils down to it's not what I think or it's not what I want. And to enter into what's real, we always have to be able to at least risk that. To be able to say, well, okay, you may be asking me to sacrifice something that I want, but am I sacrificing it for something real? You may be asking me to change my thinking, but if I do change my thinking, will I get closer to understanding what is real? And that permits this opening up. It's, it is the sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit that lets us come closer and closer to a knowledge of the truth and to behave ourselves in, in conformity with that truth, with the way things really are and the way things really will be. That's, that's great. You know, there's, when you talk about these two ideas of fear and desire, it, it kind of goes back for me to Ether 1227, which is, you know, we have, we have our weaknesses and those weaknesses can be the way in which we see the world and it can be the way in which, um, I guess when we talk about desires, the things we want and the way we want life to work out. And yet prophets and their teachings almost never are going to fit those two things. Uh, and so we're going to have to submit ourselves. We're going to have to be humble. We're going to have to let go of, of what we expected everything to, to turn out as or what expectations we felt had to be met. And we're going to have to kind of break things down and, and realize that things are perhaps not the way we frame them. And that goes back to that scripture that we see through a glass darkly. Yeah. And it, it's a matter of just being willing to make the offering. And if it, it's, we don't have to, you know, to utterly surrender, but we just have to be able, be able to ask the question, you know, instead of saying, no, that can't be right. No, I'm not going to give this up. It's just be able to come up and, and at least make, be willing to make the offering by the inquiries that may, we make and by the behavior that we're willing to change. Right, right. You, uh, I want to kind of wrap up here with the last point, which is you finish with the idea of living with differences and uncertainty. And I want to, I want to maybe ask two questions. And one is if we, if we only have this small group of biblical tests, and I realize that there's a lot of points here, but but what I mean by small group is that there are a lot of people outside the faith who in some ways might meet or at least appear to meet all of these as well. And so it almost kind of opens up a can of worms where we say, okay, lots of people can be prophets according to the test in which you've you've deciphered from the scriptures. How then do we cast out those who are not prophets? How do we make the decision between, yes, this person's a prophet because he fits all these biblical tests, and this person over here, you know, he may fit these biblical tests as well, but certainly is not a prophet. Well, it's, 
I really don't think there's any anyone who comes close um, when I look at the whole thing. So, but it's not a matter of saying uh, all or nothing in terms of virtue, you know, because you know, as I when I talked about DNC one, it's expressly it's telling us that what we have is expressly non-exclusive as far as revelation and virtue goes, and that we're imperfect and what we've got is incomplete, and that it's been a teaching from our prophets from the beginning too that. That there's other truth out there, and that there's virtue out there to appreciate and to embrace, and sometimes to you know to learn from. Can I give you an example? So, if we were to say some of these breakoff groups from our church, and in some of these groups they have a prophet, and in many ways, I mean, he he's giving talks that teach of Christ. He's uh, he's you know he's fitting, and in my mind anyway, I look at these five biblical tests for assessing prophets. And it could be argued that this person fits all of these. How do we then recognize that that's a false prophet and that they're not, they're not called of God? I know that seems like a tough question, but. It, it, it's actually a New Testament question too, you know, that they, that they dealt with them. And that's where Paul is talking about, you know, that, uh, if they went out from us, if, if, or actually a John, I think it's in first John or, you know, one of the, the little John epistles is they went out from us. And if they, because they went out from us, they're not of us anymore. There's that, that problem splitting off, and uh, that's why, you know, the things on the succession of the, the priesthood, you know, with Brigham Young and uh, the succession of the church, I think those, the things that happened around that, you know, where a hundred and, it's over a hundred people reported, you know, seeing him transform, which is, you know, quite, it's actually one of the best documented miracles in history, as far as that goes. Um it's looking at the big picture, you know, to look at all of the things, look at all of the works, look at everything that's going on, and also looking at ourselves. And if we're wanting to go off, you know, in, into some sort of French group, um, are we doing it because it's real or because in some way that it's uh, where we don't have to sacrifice a broken heart and a contrite spirit? Right. You know, and um, it's not about judging other people, you know. <laughs> Because, like you say, you know, there are there are good people out there and people who are doing their best with what they've got. And uh, you know, the, my essay closes with Joseph Smith talking about that: that the people are going to be judged, you know, not according to some absolute standard, but what they're able to do with the light that they had. But I think we're all accountable to try and improve on the light that we've got, rather than to just settle for what we're given. And I want to follow that up, kind of, with the last question. Which is, you know, it, it, we talked about this earlier, right? That the 15 men have to be in agreement. Yeah. Unless there's some dramatic revelation, you know, where the prophet says, hey, I've spoken to Christ and, and here's what's going on. These 15 men, when they're just feeling the promptings of the Spirit, have to be uh, unanimous. And, and so the question comes up, which is, why does it seem like we're reactionary uh, when when things arise or when when a solution happens in the church, it almost comes after the fact of it, it being. How can I explain it? Um, the race and priesthood announcement, the, the article that just came out, for instance. We we have the church long past the time when we've corrected these racial attitudes in our culture. The church, for the first time in an article, admits that some leaders were influenced in made comments that were racist and wrong. Now we've we've kind of flirted with it before. I think Elder Holland gave an interview in PBS where he said they probably would have been better off not saying anything than trying to give shape to the policy, but not really calling a spade a spade and saying that was wrong, it was a racist point of view and, and they never should have done that. Why is it we always seem to 
to come after the fact of when something should happen. Um, addressing the needs on the internet. We have members who are leaving the church because they're struggling over historical issues and it's been happening for a decade in a severe manner and, and getting worse and worse. And all of a sudden the church now is putting out articles online that address these issues and give people that explanation that now gives room for faith again. Why does it always feel like we're reactionary when when in our mind the assumption is we're led by prophets and apostles, prophets, seers, and revelators, and we should always be a step ahead of the game, and that's not always the case. Could, do you mind speaking to that? Well, yeah, because there's more complex games going on. And, well, there's there's a couple of things here is, is uh, that the church, for me, I don't think of the church as being an institution. The word itself means the assembly, you know, the Greek, the ecclesia, it's the gathering, it's all the people. And so for me... Uh, once I got interested, you know, this is after I got back from my mission, when I started taking initiative myself and learning things, I found I could get all the information that I wanted, you know, about everything. I read, uh, you know, like uh, Taggart's little pamphlet, you know, about the, the policy that generated uh, uh, Lester Bush's article, which I read on Dialogue and stuff. So for me, that's the church. You know, when I read that stuff in Dialogue and elsewhere, that's the church. Every much, bit as much as what's happening in headquarters. But like this article that I read from, you know, about John Boyd's idea about the power to the edge. I found the power on the edge. And that's just as much the church to me that uh, once I started asking questions and went to people who had the answers to the questions that I wanted, you know, I felt like that I've been ahead of the game. And I understand that the nature of large institutions, like a large ship, it's going to take a long time to turn the thing. You know, it's got a lot of momentum, a lot of inertia and things. But I don't have to wait for them, you know, because there's, I've noticed, you know, there's been a lot of excitement about these things showing up on the LDS website. Um, but this is stuff that I've known for 20 or 30 years or more. You know, I, I just, I can't get all that excited about it. When, uh, say, like when I got back from England and uh, I started uh, was interested in Nibley, and there was this, down in our basement, there was a stack of improvement eras from previous years and, and ensigns, and I started going through those. They'd been coming to the, into the house for years. There'd been the Nibley's article on the on Enoch. I hadn't even glanced at those. Uh, there was this 29-part series on the Book of Abraham. I hadn't glanced at those. You know, So my feeling was is this was here all the time, and I hadn't bothered to lift my eyes. And once I started doing that, then uh, I just feel like I'm ahead of the game. And it's coming from members of the church. So to me, it is the church. And if it filters up through the institution, then really that's what I expect. And uh, Todd Compton wrote an essay uh, for Sunstone called Counter-Hierarchical Revelation about instances from, you know, he, he took examples from just standard church history about where the impetus for a revelation comes from the bottom rather than the top. And one of the examples is primary. There's a couple of sisters in Bountiful started doing primary and the, the brethren heard about it and then they made it a church policy. So this sort of thing I think is really what I should expect. And I think it's a good way for it to work. It, it's it's that the people that are further out and have fewer responsibilities really have a lot more freedom to move. And then if it turns out to be something good and it's proven itself and justified itself, then it can be distributed you know, as a whole, but I don't think it always has to come from the top. And there are things that have come from the top that we don't appreciate the quality of it because we're inside it. Uh, there is an article, you know, done uh, about uh, youth in different churches in America, and this, you know, the study was saying that the Mormons are really doing better, a better job of keeping their youth than other people. 
well, so we're not in as much of a crisis because of these practices that we've had in place all the time. So we don't get excited about them. It's, oh, yeah, we just take it for granted. But right. on the outside, other people that don't have that are saying, you know, well, how come the Mormons are ahead of the game here? It doesn't, you know, we're not always ahead of the game, but we can be. You know, I'm, I'm involved, uh, my job in the stake is I'm the addiction recovery rep, you know. So I'm excited about 12 steps and what that does. Now that we didn't invent that, but it turns out Colleen Harrison has a book uh, called He Did Deliver Me From Bondage. That's, you know, a Book of Mormon 12-step book that shows that the 12 steps are in the Book of Mormon. You know, so we had the solution, but we just hadn't asked the right questions or had the level of understanding to be able to see what we already had. So, I, and I think in a lot of cases, we are ahead of the game and just don't know it yet because we haven't asked the right questions. And, and that's good because there is this assumption out there which is false, which is all revelation is top down. And, and it's not necessarily. There are lots of things that are bottom up and, uh, and we can find examples of that. Uh, in the scriptures as well. You know, when you talk about uh, the gospel going to the Gentiles, and Peter's kind of the last guy to jump on board of that uh, that policy change. Yeah, uh, there's there's ex- uh, some good examples in, in the Old Testament about Moses. There's, the, you know, the story where Moses is trying to, you know, everyone wants to come to Moses and get the answers, and uh, Jethro, his father-in-law, says, you're going to wear yourself out doing this. You've got to delegate. Okay, I'll delegate. Well, that's another thing. There's the story of some of the uh, some of the, the women are looking at the legal situation are saying, hey, well, what happens to our inheritance if we don't get married? Oh, yeah, you're right. We didn't think of that. So then it was another bottom-up question. So this sort of thing, uh, I think, just to recognize that it actually does go on, it gives us realistic expectations, plus it empowers us. Because, you know, um, a few years ago when I wrote uh, Paradigms Regained, uh, and I was published through Farms. This is my study of Margaret Barker, the first one I did. I found out that the dean of religion gave copies of that to all the teachers at BYU. So here I am out on the fringes, and I'm just doing this thing. But it turns out to have a very large impact. So I'm one of these people that can have a much larger impact because the church exists, because something I come up with can go up to the top and then go back down again. So right. it's very empowering to me. I don't just have to wait. But also... Right. And it makes us a lot more responsible for for how we progress through our own spirituality. If we just sit back and simply wait for prophets and apostles to reveal everything, then we're just minions and robots. And and that's not the idea. The idea is for each of us to be seeking and and knocking and asking. And and he who has eyes see, and he who has ears can hear, and all of that. Uh, all of that we find within the scriptures that prompts us to be uh, active uh, in progressing within our faith. Yeah, that's true. Awesome. I, I, I want to kind of wrap up. I know that uh, time is short, Kevin, so I want to kind of finish off with an idea. You mentioned Moses, and maybe this will kind of give us a, a last point just for you to share a thought on. In You mentioned Moses, and one of the thoughts I always have with Moses is we compare modern prophets to prophets of old, and we talk about Moses and Noah. It's kind of how we began this podcast with this comparison that we make and how sometimes this isn't realistic. And Maybe to take it one step further, maybe it's more realistic than we think in that we have the Israelites who follow Moses through the desert for for 40 years. And Moses seems to be performing miracles, you know, left and right. And yet the the Israelites tend to kind of fall away. They're worshiping the golden calf. They're constantly murmuring almost as much as Laman and Lemuel. And it feels like Moses is doing all these great miracles and these people are just so wicked, they're just not listening. But maybe perhaps if we just step away from the black and white idea, 
we recognize that these are stories that are written down that there's probably a lot more going on than the condensed version that we get. And that perhaps even with Moses, there are long stretches of time, months perhaps, because 40 years is a long time in the desert, perhaps months on end where great miracles are not happening, where Moses says something or teaches something that doesn't quite feel right and maybe doesn't have the mind and will of God behind it. And when we start to see it in that way, it starts to make it then reasonable why these Israelites are constantly needing to have their faith enlarged because they're constantly losing faith over the little things. And maybe if we can recognize that seeing now our modern leaders with these same kinds of weaknesses and recognizing that some prophets have great and marvelous things happen, and maybe we go one, two, or three prophets without something spectacular happening. And as you pointed out, maybe even be more aware of the things that are going on that are spectacular that we just discount as being kind of the standard because we're right in the midst of it. Um, maybe just your final thoughts on living with differences and uncertainty. Well, this, it, I think it has to do with if I'm expecting perfection, then I'm naturally going to gravitate towards imperfection as being the most important information. And uh, I, I found a book years ago called uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, where there's a diagram showing that, you know, this, this is the quote that, it, that my essay starts out with, is that the things that we think are important or want to be important, we actually see as larger than they really are. And so this idea of, of trying to understand what's real and have realistic expectations, it helps us pay attention more to what really counts. And uh, it's, it always involves a broadening of the perspectives and being patient and being willing to you know, remove the most from my own eye before I'm trying to judge other people. And so it's this movement towards acceptance, understanding, tolerance, you know, which is all, I think, you know, really what the Christian message is supposed to be, you know, to look at these people and see, if I understand that they're doing their best instead of saying, how come they're not, you know, doing what I want them to do and trying to govern through tantrumocracy, uh, <laughs> isn't going to work. But, you know, it's, uh, I just, I just see this work going on and I, I, I have a very strong testimony of it. And uh, it's, you know, the books are fun, you know, but it all goes back to, uh, for me, when I was, you know, 18, just before my mission, and was reading the Book of Mormon and came across, you know, Ether 12, uh, where uh, Moroni says, And then shall you know that I have seen Jesus, and he spake with me face to face in plain humility as one man speaketh to another. You know, when I read that, I felt like that, that that event had happened, and that, but that told me that God was someone who would speak to one of his servants face to face in plain humility. And uh, to me, that's a God worth worshiping and worth making sacrifices to get to know. Awesome. Awesome. Kevin Christensen, thank you uh, for being on today on the podcast. And I just appreciate it so much. You've given the listeners here a, a reading list of about 50 different things. Uh, there's a lot of growth I think each of us can go through if we, if we maybe listen to this podcast again, this episode and, and jot down all the things that Kevin has mentioned. There's lots of reading material to look into and lots of points that, that we need to understand and, and to recognize that if we hold our prophets and apostles to the actual claims that the Bible sets out as test for them, that, uh, that our leaders pass. And then taking that a step further that each of us not only have a privilege, but also the responsibility to seek out the Holy Spirit, that each of us can have a confirmation from that Spirit uh, to know that these men are indeed called of God. Kevin, thank you so much. Thanks, Bill. I appreciate it. Come thou fount of every blessing To my heart to sing thy grace 
streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above praise the mount I'm fixed upon it mount of thy redeeming Great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger. Interposed his precious blood. precious blood. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Clothed then in blood washed linen. How I'll sing thy sovereign grace Come my Lord, no longer tarry Take my ransom soul away Send thine angels now to carry Me to realms of endless day To grace, how great a debtor Daily I am constrained to be Let thy goodness, like a fetter Bind my wandering heart to thee Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it Prone to leave the God I love Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above.